Okay, so today we've been talking about satipatthana, samadhi, the perfection of samadhi, all leading towards the final awakening, letting go of the purification called nibbana. <clears throat> now traditionally, there are ways of looking at satipatthana and samadhi. As I mentioned earlier, say, well, there's, there's two paths. You can either go the way of insight or the way of, of, of samadhi leading to insight. Or the, there's the idea that um, you develop samadhi first, first, and then that leads to satipatthana. So let's look at this satipatthana, because the more I look at the matter, the more it seems to me like the purpose of Satipatthana, the original pers- purpose of Satipatthana, was as a basis for developing Samadhi. Not exclusively that, but, but that would be one of its main roles. I'd like to look a minute at how these different terms relate to each other. Uh, we're in the we're in a vipassana center, so the word vipassana, uh, it actually vipassana and satipatthana are not synonymous. There's no uh, correlation. There's no uh, uh, you can't just say. Um, one is the other, or one is the perfection of the other. Uh, they're related, but vipassana is much more specific. Vipassana uh, clearly refers just to the insight and the insights that lead to letting go and the freedom of the mind. The word vipassana actually only exists uh, a few times in the suttas. Uh, it doesn't exist. It doesn't occur a lot in the suttas, the way, for example, Satipatthana or Jhana does. And almost the whole time in the suttas where it is mentioned, it's mentioned in conjunction with either Samatha or Samadhi or Jhana, coming as a pair. So this is the theme which I try to keep coming back to, that. In practice and, and even in the sutra tradition, vipassana was intended to go together with with calm, you know, calm insight going together as a pair. And maybe there's a bit of emphasis on one or the other, or one's developed first or second, but in the end, they both have to be in balance then for wisdom to arise. Now, out of the whole thousands of suttas in the Pali Canon, all of these discourses, uh, two of them, only two, are devoted to Satipatthana. Uh, one in the Majjhima Nikaya and one in the Dika Nikaya. If we actually look at, at uh, what's in Satipatthana, then it becomes more and more clear. You say, oh, yeah, well, that's what I do. And that's actually sort of a foundation practice for developing samadhi. 
I'll just give you some examples. Go straight to the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, first, or the four foundations of mindfulness. First is the body. The second is Vedana, which is this uh, very immediate reaction to our senses, to our sense experience. So if we see something, then if we have a positive or negative reaction, or neutral reaction, then that's Vedana. And this happens at all the different sense doors. So if we hear something that we like, then that's positive Vedana at the ear. If we experience uh, something which is painful, then that's negative Vedana in the body. If we see something that's beautiful, uh, it's positive Vedana at the eye. So with all the six senses, then Vedana is operating. And that in itself is quite a practice, just to watch Vedana, Vedana Nupasana. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third is Jitta Nupasana, which is awareness of the general background state of the mind, the general state of the mind, concentrated, dispersed, uh, exalted, uh, unexalted, the general state of the mind. And then the fourth is to be aware of the specific objects that are arising within the mind. Now, a lot of the practice practices that are mentioned in the first section on the body are very practical ones and very much ones that are that traditionally thought of as, as tools for developing samadhi. Now, the first one is mindfulness of breathing. So in the, in the, the first uh, part of the first foundation of mindfulness on the body, it's called mindfulness of breathing because the breath is part of the body. Being mindful of that. Well, mindfulness of breathing, of course, is generally considered a, a samadhi practice, a calm practice. The second is being mindful of the different postures of the body. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down. So this continuity of awareness, uh, this moment by moment awareness of our bodies, being in our bodies, this has the effect of, of creating this continuity of mindfulness which is precisely what leads to samadhi. Being aware of all the different postures uh, and, and the manifestations of how our, our body moves within our postures. So that every time um, that we reach out, every time we get up, every time we move forward and back, again, it's a more refined version of establishing mindfulness in the body. And if we, we find if we do that, it really does lead to uh, a sense of calm. The next section is on investigating the body. Now, this is probably the uh, the most common way 
in the forest tradition for developing insight. And it's a practice which is both uh, simultaneously develops insight and samadhi. Going through the body, investigating the different parts, taking it apart, putting it back together. That can, it takes a lot of samadhi to do that. And it can lead to a great deepening of awareness around our perceptions of our body. And then you go into all the different meditations concerned with with death and the decomposition of the body. Again, these are considered uh, meditations in the forest tradition, which uh, you would do to develop both samadhi and insight. In a nutshell, you can say you can you can sum up all of the Buddha's teachings by saying that uh, it's concerned with sila, morality, samadhi, what we've been talking about, and wisdom, panya. So in there, where is it that the Buddha places satipatthana? You would almost expect to see it in the wisdom category, but he puts it in the samadhi category. So there are these indications in the suttas as well that uh, the Buddha intended it in many ways to, to be a practice that would lead to a deepening and stabilizing of the mind. There's a quote here from the suttas. Here, our venerable one dwells contemplating the body in the body. And the same goes for feelings, mind, and mental phenomena. Internally, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world, dwelling, contemplating the body in the body, internally, there, right samadhi arises, and one is rightly purified. So, this, the first part of that phrase is, a stock phrase from the Satipatthana Sutta. Body, feelings, mind, phenomena, contemplating internally, externally, having removed covetousness and grief or displeasure with regard to the world. And then it says internally, right there, this is where samadhi arises, one is rightly purified. That's from the Digha Nikaya 2, 216.10, <laughs> for those who want to check the poly. <laughs> um, just read just a couple other quotes as well while we're here. The development of samadhi is the repetition development and cultivation of these same states, namely satipatthana and right effort. I will dwell contemplating the body in the body. Same for feelings, mind, and phenomena. Ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, 
having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. When monk, this samadhi, refers to it as that practice as samadhi, which is the quote from the Satipatthana Sutta. When monk, this samadhi is thus developed and made much of, you should develop this samadhi with initial and sustained application. And then he goes on to describe the different states of the jhana. So this would indicate that practicing the Satipatthana gets you to a place where the mind is is quite stable, with a base level of samadhi. And then once you have that, you develop it further into the jhanas. And furthermore, it says, for one with right mindfulness, satipatthana, samasamadhi, right samadhi, i.e. the jhanas, springs up. When the mind does become more calm and focused and we start getting experiences of both insight or samadhi, then the whole question of enlightenment starts to come up. And the the question of, well, what is enlightenment? It can have a rather vague or mysterious veil around it. But in many ways, the Buddha was quite specific about what it is, although he didn't describe it as such. He would describe it in terms of what it's not. It is clearly when the heart has been purified of greed, hatred, and delusion, and any of the subtle movements of the mind outwards, Towards, uh, towards acquiring, towards aversion, towards delusion. And the mind is purified of that. When we're purified of the delusion that leads to a sense of wanting to look for happiness through sensual desire, fulfilling sensual desire, through becoming, being and becoming, that whole sense of self, that perpetuates samsara, <coughs> that arises from it. Those states of samadhi, they're very easy to misinterpret as states of enlightenment. Because at every stage of developing samadhi and insight, it's a novel thing, a new thing, even small insights, when they happen initially, can seem mind-blowing. And the same happens with samadhi. When the mind becomes, as I described earlier, to unify, boundless, measureless, temporarily just bright, without any 
uh, sign of greed, hatred, or delusion, or the five hindrances, or any impurity whatsoever, then it's very easy, very common to interpret that as an enlightenment. To think, ah, it's happened. <laughs> and um, a real good teacher will will always um, caution you not to overestimate. Even if that hasn't been a problem, still, uh, when when people do come up with uh, very powerful experiences, there's something in our minds wants, wants to think, yeah, I've done it. Enlightenment. And because it's one more thing that that uh, we could identify with. It's the best thing to be identified with. Enlightened person. But even these great states of of samadhi, although they are, are definitely very powerful and transforming, they're temporary. So the thing to keep in mind is if we uh, if we misinterpret them as states of insight and then we consider ourselves enlightened, then uh, we can get into the idea that anything I do from now on then is just an expression of this purity of enlightenment. And this is where it's easy for some teachers to get in trouble in terms of their sila. But even if the, the sila aspect isn't a problem, one of my teachers that I spoke to about that, he said uh, this level of uh, interpretation of jhana as enlightenment, that in itself, it's a problem, but it's not a problem. But there isn't a teacher, there isn't any of the great teachers who haven't misinterpreted because jhana itself can be so powerful, you think that's enlightenment. That's at least one of the stages of enlightenment. And getting stuck on that, that idea, is not such a problem, but it's just a matter of how long you get, how long you stay stuck there. And uh, we were saying all of the great masters, at some point, get stuck there without realizing that, oh, actually, there's still work to do. That's how powerful these states are. That even Ajahn Chah, though he didn't get stuck for very long, stuck a bit. Even some of our great teachers, like Ajahn Mahabua, he was, he had incredible samadhi and meditation and was doing lots of different types of practices, practicing very intensely, staying with his teacher Ajahn Mun. And Ajahn Mahabua had basically thought his practice was finished. And then Ajahn Mun just said to him one day, well, you're just going to stay that way until you die? <laughs> you know, like, like well, you're just going to hang around doing nothing until you die? Which was a big shock to him. And he, so, 
What do you mean? I'm fully enlightened. <laughs> he didn't say it quite like that. But he actually uh, started to discuss a bit with his teacher, which in that those circles was considered a bit argumentative. And uh, said, well, you did it this way, but I did it this way. And, you know, just different ways of practice. And Ajahn Mun. It took a bit of... Uh, Verbal hammering to, to you know, get it in, get it into him that for him to accept that oh this is merely a state of samadhi that's how powerful it was and from that point on then he he started uh, taking up Ajahn Man's advice practicing the way of investigating the body etc and then from that it led on to more and more powerful inside experiences. So when it comes to the nature of enlightenment and insight and any powerful experience that we have, whatever it is, no matter how powerful it is, if we start to identify with it, then we taint it somehow. And if we, if we stop our intensity of practice because of that, then that's, that's a, 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 something's gone wrong there. Because even if, it is, if it's a very deep insight, you just need to keep practicing. It does, it, we don't have to put a label on it. There's something in us which kind of likes to put a label on something, like a, some sort of certificate for our wall. Said, okay, you've got jhana, you've got sotapanna, you've got at least, you've got the five hindrances. <laughs> but the, it, it's better just to just to keep working with it, whatever it is. You just keep working working, trying to deep it, deepen it, trying to keep going. Never stop. Even if it is a, a true insight, then you just have to keep testing it. Is it really that way, or is it, uh, is it merely because I think it's that way? Overestimation or misinterpretation of some experience as enlightenment it's only really a problem if we stop practicing. Because if we continue to practice, continue to investigate and challenge our experience, then it will eventually correct itself. And if it is a true experience, then it will remain stable and unchanged. And we'll keep verifying it. I emphasize samadhi a lot in my practice because that's really the only way that we can wean ourselves off of the world. And the world is is 
the world's just there. It has a lot of enticements. But what makes it a problem is that we need happiness. We need we're human beings. We, we need happiness in some form or another. And even if we can only get little bits of happiness here and there, still that's, that's better than not having it. But the Buddha said the great benefit of developing samadhi is that you discover a happiness that is not dependent on the world, is independent of the world, a happiness that arises from within. And it's only at that point that one can really significantly start to let go of the world. Even if we have lots of understanding, even if we agree with all the theory, we'd still end up saying, well, why? I understand that I should let go. Why can't I let go? I understand that it's not my own long-term benefit. Still, why can't I let go? It's because until we experience a happiness which is better, something in the mind says, well, look, you know, I'm not going to burn my bridges behind me. And that's the that's one of the greatest benefits of of developing samadhi is, is realizing that wow it's okay it's safe to let go. Not only do I experience not only do I not I'm not going to miss out on happiness but I'm going to experience more happiness. And, and we need that we need kind of this assurance that it's. It's actually safe to let go. It's going to be okay. And then when we do let go, that sense of relief from release even increases the sense of welfare and contentment. So these are the basic themes that I've been sticking with today. That in any path of practice, if it's balanced, if it's working right, if it's going to be leading to insight, it's going to be combining both insight and calm, samadhi and satipatthana. And how satipatthana is so intricately interwoven with samadhi practices that and some say that they just fulfill each other. Like if you look at the, the sutta on mindfulness of breathing, it said the four categories, the four sections of the mindfulness of breathing, they fulfill the four satipatthana. And if you look in the satipatthana, it says it fulfills right samadhi, leads to right samadhi. So in the end, just going in the right direction is the important thing. Even if out of today's retreat, we just get a little, a little bit of, of conventional right view, and that can be invaluable in, in taking a step in the right direction and uh, proceeding 
with confidence and persistence and never give up. Okay, so we have, still have a bit of time for questions. If there are any questions then before before I stop talking. Oh, well, it's, it's quite possible to have everything fall apart in community as well. <laughs> but you can, but that's, and you can ignore it more, I think, uh-huh. community work. Okay. Well, the issue of community versus solitary practice, it's another one of these issues which needs to be in balance. All the time. Sometimes being in a community is is very very supportive, and occasionally being in a community can be a distraction. Uh, sometimes being in solitude is just what we need to have that time and space to to focus and go deep into practice. Other times, being in solitude. Um, might not be very valuable at all. It, it might be uh, conducive to developing blind spots. We could be wasting time. Um, we could be avoiding things. And then it's time to come back into community. So in terms of practice, it's not just the case that the things have to fall apart before they all come together. There, um, as practice becomes more and more intense, we really have to fundamentally question a lot of very basic questions, like who, who we think we are, uh, why with. It fundamentally challenges uh, the way we look at life. 
So that's not necessarily hitting rock bottom, but but it's a real it can just be an intensification of practice. I don't think there's uh, you say in a situation like yourself, there's no need to go off anywhere unless you find that your practice is going really well and it's going your meditation is going so well to the point where you feel like you you just want to just go off alone and, and, and focus just on that but as long as community life is is helpful and supportive and um, encouraging wholesome states of mind then community practice is wonderful essential it's really hard in, in a non-Buddhist country not to keep up practice when you don't have a community. It's very, very important and supportive. Even if you just come together once a week, still there's, there's the feeling like you're supported somehow by the larger group. That's invaluable. But then in a real sense of community, even if you go off alone, you still have that sense of feeling part of the community, which is important, that, that sense of support. Traditionally, Satipatthana has been almost identified with insight, synonymous with it. But yeah, I don't fully believe that anymore. So, what I what I see as insight practice is contemplating anything in terms of its impermanence, in terms of non-self, in terms of dukkha, or in terms of sunyata, happiness. And that, that can be uh, four foundations, one of the four foundations of mindfulness, such as the body, or feelings, or but it can also just be external things. Insight in, clear insight into anything. Just very ordinary things. But that's that's the main thing. In the forest tradition, usually what you do is to come into the body for insight investigate the body in, in one of those terms. My general habit is to investigate in terms of anatta. There's the identification 
with the body, with a certain perception of the body, how it looks, and who it is, and identification as me, mine, and then um, working with that perception. For example, um, taking the body apart, putting it back together, taking it apart, putting it back together, um, just contemplating the body as impermanent, constantly changing, subject to fading away. Just someday, not too far, not too long in the future, it's just going to disappear. Right? It's going to dissolve back into the elements. And, and theoretically, we know that, but if we really knew it, then our relationship with the body and the body's suffering and sense of self would radically transform. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.